welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in so many different ways. Our subject today is the topical one of devolved powers and emergencies, considering how emergencies test constitutional arrangements concerning devolved powers and how such constitutional arrangements might be improved in the future. I'm Ian Duncan. I have with me on the uh, the Zoom call Jim Gallagher, Stephen Gethins and Catherine Steiner. So let me introduce each of them in turn. Jim Gallagher is a former civil servant, the head of the Scottish Government's Justice Department. He was also the secretary of the UK Civil Contingencies Committee, which was in charge of emergency planning, so perhaps particularly relevant today. Uh, He was the UK government's most senior advisor on devolution and other constitutional issues, working in the Cabinet Office and the Number 10 Policy Unit under Gordon Brown. Stephen Gethins has worked in the NGO sector, specialising in peace building, arms control and democracy in the Caucasus and the Balkans. He was an MP at Westminster until very recently and was his party frontbench spokesman on international affairs and on Europe. Our final guest this morning is Catherine Steiner, who was a long-standing Labour MEP in the European Parliament and is now Chief Executive Officer of Creative Commons. So those are the great brains we have on the call today. What I'm going to do is kick it open with a very general question to see where we can uh, land. So what particular aspects of the current emergency are testing the arrangements for the devolved powers? And I'm just going to go clockwise, which only I can see, because none of you can see what I can see, but clockwise, starting with Stephen Gethin. So, Stephen, what do you think? I think the well, the current emergency has been something of a revelation for a number of people. I noticed uh, a couple of months ago, Ramsey Jones um, a former special advisor at the Scotland office and at number 10 on, on, on Scotland saying that's the sound of the penny dropping across Whitehall in terms of devolution, because what we've seen over the past few months are the powers that the First Minister has in Scotland and in Wales and in Northern Ireland and in England. And you've seen that with the daily briefings that we get and also the different approaches that each of the different administrations are able to take. But there are some differences there. And the most recent one, I think the most important one, of course, has been finances. Because if you're going to have furlough schemes that accompany the public health measures, having a devolved administration with public health powers is fine. But when it comes to the economic impact, not having the full array of powers is not fine. And that means that decisions are being made at Westminster in terms of the finance, but in the devolved administrations in terms of the public health measures. And I think that slight divorce is something that's going to cause real concern is causing concern at the moment. And that's just one of the areas whereby the setup is being tried. It was, of course, never built for this kind of situation. So can I just <clears throat> tease that out a little bit more? Because we sure. can see that the, 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 the Scottish government, the Welsh government and so on have mm. had different access to the powers. But then you could also argue that the English regions have had, had even less access to exactly the same sort of powers. So it's testing not just the devolved settlement, but actually the the regional constitutional arrangement of the whole country. It does. And actually, you're, you're absolutely right, Ian. And it was it was it was interesting to see those tensions between, say, yeah. Andy, Andy Burnham, for example, you know, as, as a mayor of one part of, of England with the centre over that. And I think when you've got such restrictions at a financial level, we're starting to see that. And you're right, Ian, it doesn't just impact on Scotland or Wales, it impacts on Manchester or Newcastle because you have that tiered approach. And interestingly, a tiered approach has been tried elsewhere in Europe. You know, the, the UK is not the only country that is dealing with this. You cannot have a centralised approach to the problem. Now, Catherine, I heard you kind of um, echoing the same sort of problem. Do you want to come in on that? I was just the Andy Burnham point about really showing how the challenges and how they relate to 
to the, the, the different places we find ourselves in. So you're right, Stephen, if you've got to, to take stronger measures in one place where they're not backed up by the, the economic support, what do you do? And I think we're seeing as, as this pandemic pans out about the real tests and challenges of where we are in terms of the United Kingdom. And you saw that with Wales as well. We saw what Mark Drieffer had to do in terms of a full lockdown and then not having the furlough and having uh, been told that he could have access to, to the resource. So there are these tensions which are clearly very visible. In part, in part we're probably making the, the invisible visible of devolution. Jim, I mean, I'm very conscious you were on the UK Civil Contingencies Committee. So, I mean, again, a role of coordination amongst different entities within the constitutional arrangement. What's your take on, on this challenge? I think the interesting thing here is that no matter what happens in any country, and certainly in the UK, and as Stephen says, in every other country, different levels of government are going to exercise different powers. And the idea that everything should be centralised uh, whether that's in London or Edinburgh, is uh, actually a mirage. What you need is a coordination of the exercise of powers across the different levels of government. It's particularly challenging in this event uh, because, as Stephen has said, there needs to be a coordination between the economic and the public health, and also because it's a very, very prolonged process. We've been here now for months and months and months, and we will be for a long time. It is entirely possible to operate emergencies across the devolved boundaries. We've done it before. The one which is burnt in my memory is the fire strike uh, of nearly 20 years ago, uh, when I sat in Edinburgh coordinating with my colleagues in London and in Wales, bringing devolved powers to bear on some things, reserve powers, for example, the deployment of the military uh, together, uh, because we were able to cooperate. What we see at present is less of a constitutional problem and more of a political one. And the problem is political in two senses. One, people are inclined to point up the division and say, as Stephen rather hints, the only answer to that is to centralise. And others, uh, a political problem, the UK government uh, has, in my view, been unusually inept at managing its own response, thus its coordination with the devolved. It's quite remarkable to see the, the degree to which uh, there has been political difference over issues which could have been operational, economic and health related. Can I just pull that apart slightly? Because as someone who sat on the Joint Ministerial Committee, two things were very evident. At the level of the civil servants, the coherence was actually quite strong. You tended to find that there was a fair degree of cooperation, forewarning, engagement and so on. The Ministerial Committee was generally meant to be brought in to address tensions that, that occurred between governments, which were by and large usually, as it happened laterally, political tensions. It never meant often enough for there to be the comfort in the functioning of this entity. And equally, as somebody who sat on it, you would pretty much have to allow the first 20 minutes for grievance just to get that done. And then you would get into the substantive points, because the first elements were always political, capital P, and very rarely about the elements that needed to be done. So I'm wondering if what we're seeing here is an exposure of the failures of our political system, whilst our constitutional arrangements at a civil service level might be working relatively well, and placing it in the context of the pandemic. Are we finding a situation in which our medical, our civil service, our, our those individuals are working relatively well together, but the politics is getting in the way? Possible, though. I don't think we have evidence for it. 
but also in the system that we've got, it's impossible to get away from the politics. Unfortunately, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we live in a system whereby you have different layers of of government. Civil servants will, and and, and I've worked with civil servants, will effectively and well get on with things um, as far as they possibly can. But ministers and politicians decide, and they are answerable to their respective um, electorates for those decisions. But do so, you find things, Stephen, just, just yeah. teasing it out, between, say, the devolved governments and local authorities, do you find the same sort of tensions that exist then, where people are responsible to their electorate, so yeah. a councillor is responsible to their, their ward, so in the same context, because I'm not seeing that in quite the same capital P political way that I see between the devolved and the UK government. No, and it's and it's interesting in Scotland, for example, where you've got that more tiered approach. And I know that, that, that you know, for example, if you've got low rates um, of transmission, say, in the Highlands, and the Highlands are able to be that little bit more open than, say, the Central Belt is, then why not do it? Now, I know that trying to govern for 65 million, all its discrepancies and differences is different than, say, for 5 million or a local authority level of a few hundred thousand. But I think it's where that decentralisation does become important. The challenge is, I'm not sure that the structures, and this is where it comes to the fundamental problem, is the structures have not kept up with devolution. So if there's a problem, who decides? If there's a conflict, who decides? And if you have a discrepancy such as that in the furlough scheme, which is, you know, and this was as much a problem for Mark Drakeford in Wales as it was for Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, as it was for Andy Burnham in Manchester, who decides? Because fundamentally, you have public health policy, you know, cannot be driven on its own. It needs to be driven with a range of factors. Because the one thing, again, as I'm aware, looking at the situation, for example, in Aberdeen, who went into an early lockdown, mm -hmm. didn't receive the same level of compensation as, say, Glasgow did. And you found at that point very different tensions, almost the same microcosm of the UK versus the devolved areas. But I don't think that was resolved particularly well either. I think it's a challenge. And, and Catherine, maybe the challenge here is that our, our system just doesn't really work well in an emergency. It works well under the more kind of sedate methods and rhythms of, of governance, but it doesn't work well when tested to extremes. I should say that Fife just moved into tier tier three today, uh, Ian, and, and one of the reasons is being given that, that Fife has dramatic rise in COVID cases is because we were in tier two and people came across to party in Kirkcaldy. <laughs> so there is something about, um, and I, I, I use that as, a, as an anecdotal uh, piece of evidence about the spreading of this virus and how if we're in different parts, so there's maybe an argument there that maybe a more central approach dealing with this virus so there's challenges isn't there about how we are managing this but no I think that there's a, a bigger challenge with the system because of what's been happening with local government and I think that the funding of local government in this is, is a is been challenged I believe to an extent where we're looking at local authorities to to, to do certain things and uh, and they're not being supported in the way that is necessary. Thanks, Catherine. One of the issues that you've touched on already, so where are, where are the pinch points in this? And Stephen, you already flagged up the, the financial situation, uh, and we're seeing that writ large and small, so between London and the capitals around the country, but also between the capitals and the regional uh, local authorities. But Jim, is there a, are there other areas in which this has been, the, the, the constitutional shortcomings have been exposed in addition to the financial arrangement? I think the, to the extent that the constitutional issues have been exposed as problematic, they are wherever the boundary between responsibilities 
exists. Finance and, and the, the economy versus the, uh, versus the public health is a good example of that. And that means that the incentives and levels of government are certainly different. So, for example, the incentive on the UK government, which is having to borrow the money, is not the same as the incentive of the devolved government, which merely receives the money. That's not to say that one is right, the other is wrong, but the pressures on them are different. I wonder if I could just take you back to an understanding of just how whether this is really a constitutional question. Um, you mentioned, Ian, the joint ministerial committees, which is a set of ministers coming together from the different administrations to talk about policy issues and, uh, as you say, the issues of the day. Unlike every other UK government cabinet committee, the Civil Contingencies Committee actually contains the devolved administration's ministers and its official supporting material, its subcommittees and so on, contain devolved civil servants. And that's because the challenge we're trying to meet here in a typical emergency is operational. What are we going to do? The challenge of this particular emergency is that there are choices which have not been well thought out in advance, uh, although we have been planning for a pandemic for more than 20 years. And the process of making those choices in the UK government has been pretty chaotic, but it's been pretty chaotic in the devolved administration as well. Uh, I see this is less a constitutional question and more a political and operational one and shortcomings in both of those. I think local government has been very short of resources, both north and south of the border. It has been squeezed very heavily for some decades now, and its operational capability is very weak. But one of the striking things about Westminster and Whitehall at the moment is just how weak the operational capability of central government has been in dealing with this pandemic. So one looks at, for example, at the test and trace system, which has been notably weak in England, created uh, out of nothing uh, using the private sector, rather than one, what one would have expected of it devolving to local government and, and health authorities. It's not been that much better in Scotland by the sound of it, so it does seem to be working quite well in Wales. So operational capability of government is the thing which has been thrown up for me as the biggest weakness in this, rather actually in constitutional questions at all. That becomes an interesting test because there has been a lot of applause and condemnation of the various politicians involved, north and south of the border particularly. But quite a lot of the operational affairs in these departments are in, a, are in arm's length bodies. They are, in essence, separate from government. So when you look at Public Health England, when you look at some of the elements of this, they, are, they don't sit within the traditional ministries that would have been the case in the early part of the last century. So you do have now other failings that we're seeing between the construct of that style of Quango-esque arm's length bodies in a government who are not as immediately responsive to the instruction or the fiat of a minister. And that, that would be true in both Scotland and in, uh, and in the rest of the UK, because they both have the same broad model. Stephen, you might have a thought on that. Actually, I was going to come back. This this question of resources is a really interesting one, and the question of, sort of ministerial oversight. And you're, and, and, and you're right, because look, on the question of ministers and, and how this is done, we have to remember we're dealing with people. And although Jim's absolutely right, this has been planned you know, planning something and then when it actually happens, as Jim will be more aware than most of us, are two entirely different things and different set of circumstances are thrown up. But one thing that struck me, and, and, and this might sound a little bit off piece, but bear with me. I remember when I sat in the Foreign Affairs Committee in Westminster and consistently we were unearthing failures over policy, be it on Libya, 
and Iraq and elsewhere. And one of the biggest fundamental failings in terms of intelligence or foresight was that the Foreign Office, for example, had been disinvested in over decades because when you had the financial crash, but before that, we're putting less money into government. Now, at some point, that has an impact on the service that you're providing. And the, the difficulties that they were seeing in the Foreign Office, I wonder if we're starting to see in other operations as well, because you cannot under-resource different government agencies and not see an impact. And this is for a wider discussion. And also the fact that um, keeping and retaining officials is so important. And if we think about the turnover that you've seen um, at some points within government agencies as well, the point at which that becomes a problem. Now, I know we're going off piste and I still think that the constitutional arrangements are important, but you can't overlook these more fundamental challenges that government might face as well. I mean, with the best will in the world, in the next few years, governments across the globe are going to have less money because they've had to spend so much, borrow so much. So the prospect of having more money to invest is probably a pipe dream in, in almost any adventure. So this will only therefore get worse, not better. Would that be fair? Catherine, do you think that are we on a downward spiral into some sort of um, even more incapable system? I think it's about our, how we resource, how we manage. I mean, I looked at um, the risk register for the, the UK. I think that the 2017 document just looked something that was pretty cobbled together, not really thought through. In, in the university, there's a thorough analysis of risks and mitigation. All I could see in that document was really about risks. If we really are going to try and address and manage some of our risks across the nations, then that coordination, not just about the risk, but the mitigation has to be more clearly um, looked upon. And when you look at what's on the Scottish government website just now, even going down to a home level, again, it brings back the, the, the local aspect of how we manage risks and contingencies. And if we're going to be in a, in a resource situation where we have less resource and to manage more challenges, it will be about choices and decisions, how we move forward. And those choices and decisions will be political ones. Well, can I bring us back? Because again, looking at the constitutional arrangement and allowing for the fact that our, as we've said a, a number of times before, the constitution doesn't allow for England to exist in any meaningful way and its regions don't really have the same leverage that the nations uh, of the UK have. Is there a role now for a fundamental re-examination of those structures, the joint ministerial committee, the various underpinning committees that sit below that? Is it now time for a, a not just a piecemeal tinkering with the constitution, but a fundamental re-examination of how it works. And I'm loath to the word federalism in here, but just putting it into context, it may end up looking like a milestone on the journey toward a more federal approach. Would that be fair, Jim? Do you think that's where we're headed? The short answer to that is yes. The constitutional challenge here uh, is, in a sense, the mirror image of the operational one. It's perfectly plain uh, in this emergency that the non-existence of England and in particular, the inappropriate distribution of power in England, i.e. the unnecessary centralisation and effectiveness of that, suggests that England needs to, to change its internal structure. But if England changes its internal structure, that changes the nature of the UK as a whole. And I, my view has been for some time that we need to have a, quite a deep look at the territorial arrangements of the UK and recognise that distributed power is good for England, just as it's good for Scotland uh, and for Wales. The underlying issue here is that there are almost no issues which operate solely at one territorial level. 
The pandemic is a really good example of that. You can manage health services at a territorial level, but the financial consequences are absorbed at a wider level. And one can see that across almost all areas of public policy. And the challenge is to allocate the responsibility and the authority at the right level. Emergencies uh, have the challenge of cutting across that, typically because they are they emerge. You can't always predict them and you can't always rehearse for them. And they are often, they often require to be dealt with very, very quickly. And the processes of politics aren't good for them. But for other issues, something like a quasi-federal arrangement is, I think, the way forward. Do we find a challenge? It's sort of the notion that before the First World War, people were very much at the cutting edge of cavalry charges, but hadn't quite worked out the next war was not going to be fought on horseback. And, you know, are we in a similar situation now that the structures we're putting in place are for yesterday, not tomorrow? We're not thinking, where do we need to be in order to respond? Because one of the curious reflections I've had on the COVID crisis is, had this been a much more intensive crisis where the, where the contagion was greater, the challenge for government would have been even more extreme in order to coordinate uh, at a, a very kind of fundamental level. But would our structures have been able to cope? They're barely coping with one in the current arrangement. So I suppose the questions underpinning that, are we going to have the political will to re-examine our constitutional structures in a cohesive way at a time when, you know, certainly if you look at the government of Scotland, it's minded toward a very fundamentally different constitutional settlement. Is there going to be the appetite, the time and the will to look at this in a pan-UK context? Or are we really just having a pipe dream, given the number of crises we're going to face in terms of finance, Brexit and the various other daily challenges that governments have up and down the land? Catherine, you might want to come in on that. Thanks. Thanks for that one, Ian. Part of me thinks we don't have an option but to face the challenges that we face together. There's something we haven't really touched upon in this discussion with all these challenges is the technical innovation and the technical challenges that have have been risen by the, the, the pandemic. We've looked to digital solutions. Um, some have worked, some have not, but the ability and willingness of individuals to want to be able to contribute and share information and data to be able to protect people's health, not just their own health, but the, the, the community they live in's health and family health, has been quite fascinating, but equally misinformation has also posed problems to how we manage the challenges that we face. So again, it's more about the politics around and the will and responsibility. We talked about how much of this is about operational challenges. It's also about how we take responsibility both as individuals and the, the responsibility of the state and how those two things work together to be able to meet these challenges that we face. See, I've been slightly struck looking at Westminster where and at Holyrood and elsewhere. So in the middle of the, the, the early stages of the pandemic, the notion of MPs being able to come into from across the land into central London was pretty much not a clever idea for a whole range of reasons we're well aware of. But the only part of the UK that really addressed that and sorted out was the House of Lords, who literally created remote voting and have stuck with it and have allowed that to happen at a time when even the Scottish Parliament, which was the cutting edge of its of electronic, is still struggling, frankly, on its voting system. And, and, and the House of Commons has gone bonkers as if we should be going back to 1920. We have the technology, we simply have none of the will to actually embrace it. Is there, a, is there an issue in that, Stephen? I think there is. I, I'm afraid to say that I mean, my experience of the Commons that there are certain people who, who are responsible there 
who have got this old fashioned version of the Commons, and that must be um, that must be kept. Those traditions must be maintained, even if it is to the detriment of actually being a functioning organisation. Yesterday, I mean, we, we had the set of circumstances whereby an MP who's recovering from cancer could not take part in a debate on cancer because she was shielding. That's really serious. And actually, going back to your original point about how do we change things? Well, we're in a set of circumstances whereby we have to ask ourselves, well, is it reformable? I mean, Jim has, has written beautifully about moving to a quasi-federal UK, but actually is a more fundamental reform really needed? Does the Commons work? The Lords might be good at their IT, but is it a good form of government in terms of legislating? And fundamentally, if you look at the polling in Scotland, you'll see that, that so many people have now switched off a belief in the UK. And look, and people can believe in that or not believe in it. Is it even possible to reform? Has that ship sailed, especially in the aftermath of Brexit? David's challenge is a fair one. The answer to that is that, of course, any state is reformable and opinion you know, can change as it has changed in one direction. It could as easily change in another uh, the more difficult challenge, I think, for the other side of that argument is the extent to which not reforming the UK and simply leaving the UK leaves Scotland in an, an even more awkward position because it has, let us say, 40 or 45% of the population who have not consented to the creation of a new state. And I would rather collectively uh, that we look for ways to find something around which everybody in Scotland could unite by getting at least some of what they want. Uh, and Ian, as you, as you hint, of course, one of the things which has driven opinion in Scotland has been this pandemic and how it's been operated. And that reflects uh, a, bit of, um, a bit of politics here and there. But to be honest, quite substantial governmental weakness in operating the system at the centre in running what's an, an immensely difficult challenge and rather better presentation north of the border uh, in running it. That would be a very strange basis on which to make uh, a constitutional change. I think one of the challenges we have here is the difference between political perception and, let's say, policy reality. Mm. Because anyone who delves into the details of the pandemic's handling at a, at a mechanical level in the UK and Scotland We'd probably come to the conclusion it's not actually that different. And in fact, the advice received north and south has been broadly comparable, and the actions taken north and south have been remarkably similar. It's not as if one has gone vehemently toward a Swedish model while the other has decided on a completely different approach. So in, in lots of ways, what we're seeing now is judgments made on the comms, the, the, the darker arts of things, perhaps, than the fundamental aspect. Now, I'm aware that we're coming to the end of our time together, so I'm going to go around the panel just with broadly one thought about what we should be doing next to address the constitutional arrangements um, through the lens of the experience of these um, crises or this COVID crisis of experience. So, Jim, what would you do next? What's the simple step? What's the answer? Don't let a good crisis go to waste. Okay? The challenge that we face at the moment, um, and it's extraordinary, so many people are talking about constitutions when we're about to have to reconstruct our economy uh, and when we're going to have to think through what our medical vulnerability is going forward because we don't know how COVID will go and it's um, it, as I said earlier we've been expecting a pandemic for 20 years and, and it's long overdue do not be surprised if there's another one it may be more difficult even than the present one 
So we have these really, really big questions to address. And in the in that context of whether people have jobs or whether they're sick, messing around with constitutional arrangements might not sound uh, quite so important. This crisis offers one opportunity, actually, uh, to, do, uh, to do both of those things. We need to reconstruct the UK economy post-COVID. Only the UK government can take a lead in that because we are an integrated economy. We're uh, we're a one large domestic market, and it should do that. Here is my proposal by setting up. I choose to call a national executive committee consisting of the executives in the UK. That is to say, uh, the central government, the devolved governments, and the regional executives across England to coordinate uh, the activity of government to reconstruct the British economy uh, after what is going to be an enormous downturn as a result of COVID. Funnily enough, maybe if we find some successful things we can do together, maybe the constitutional questions will look easier to answer. That's useful, Jim. I'm going to go to um, Stephen next and let Catherine conclude. So Stephen, the big takeaway from today? The constitutional settlements are there to better people's lives, to better the business environment, to better public services. And actually, I think that has to be integral to any assessment, because do we have the best setup that um, leads to the best quality of life and the most successful that we can be? And I'm not sure we do. Thank you, Stephen. Catherine, I'm going to give you the last word on this one. All politics is local. And I want to see local government, uh, reimagining local government in the time of crisis. That was so succinct, I didn't even have time to unmute my button there. That's very impressive. The important thing I think we've learned today is that there are challenges that we are able to agree on and, and directions that we could probably see in common. So I think that's a useful takeaway from today. So again, in conclusion, thank you to Stephen Gathams, Catherine Styler and Jim Gallagher, our talking heads today. This has been Talking Constitutions, and I'm very grateful to have had a chance to take part in that. And until the next time, um, goodbye. <laughs>